Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Over the past couple of years, there's been substantial investment to addressing homelessness in Victoria as part of the government's approach to managing COVID-19. But the recent state budget revealed that one of these key programs will have its funding cut by $40 million annually, This or just over $40 million annually. This has advocates concerned about the potential for some of these recent gains to be reversed. One of those speaking out is CEO of Council to Homeless Persons, Jenny Smith, and she joins us now on the line. Jenny, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, good morning, Dylan. Good morning, Talia. And so I wonder, to start, if you could just take us through what the From Homelessness to Home program is. Yeah, absolutely. So what we saw, as you indicated in your introduction, is uh, the Victorian government really step up uh, during the COVID lockdowns and make sure that uh, all Victorians uh, were able to uh, isolate safely. And that led to placing... um, about 19,000 people uh, in hotels over the course of the Victorian lockdowns. Um, So in a way that drew the attention of homelessness even more to the Victorian government and they um, made a massive announcement of $5.3 billion for uh, the big housing build which was uh, to build more social housing over over the next four years and that's uh, well underway. And they also uh, announced the Homeless to a Home program, which provided more money to uh, put um, people in hotels twice late as needed. But perhaps even more importantly from our point of view, to to make sure that 1,845 people uh, would have a pathway to a forever home and the support that they needed to keep it. And it is... Uh, the reality that some people with considerable complexity in their lives do need ongoing support to be able to keep that housing that they can afford once they get it. And then they subsequently announced uh, um, a Homes for Families program, very similar for, um, for up to 250 families. So this, um, this, was just, this is just such an important program. It means that the... Uh, round and round churn that we see through our homelessness services and through our emergency departments and the activity of police and prisons and um, uh, acute hospital beds, psych beds with people uh, who end up receiving inappropriate care and very expensive care um, largely because of things that happen because they haven't got a home, an ongoing home that they can afford. So, um, you know, we're really shocked, really shocked, very upset uh, to discover that the $55 million for that support to um, assist uh, those 1,845 people to get a home and then to uh, have the support that they need on and off to um, keep it uh, had been slashed to uh, $12 million ongoing. So... It's unfortunate because it, it's just not going to cut it and uh, we, we think that that will mean that 1,440 people will miss out on that ongoing support or, um, you know, perhaps even worse, that the support the dollars that remain will be spread too thinly. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know what? 
I know, across. Jenny. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, we, I mean, people in the pandemic, and certainly um, we, we were one of the, the programs and media talking about the packages and, and the spend that was there to get people off the streets. People speaking, uh, sleeping rough during the pandemic, making sure people were safe and able to isolate, and all the things that we were doing at that time. There was a lot of pride there. Have you been given an explanation why the funds have been taken? And I guess have, have the funds gone somewhere else or are they just gone? Well, I think that the government is... It's understandable that they're saying, look, things that we funded for COVID, we we can't keep funding, you know, in this financial environment. And I think we all get that. But if you look at the announcement, if you look at the tender specifications for the, for the actual service, and if you look at the preliminary evaluation of this service, which has been um, done and very positive, um, it's all talking about an ongoing program as it needs to be. It really, um, it really wasn't a COVID initiative to help people uh, get out of the hotels and into their accommodation. It was very much uh, uh, ongoing support for people with really significant complexity in their lives. So, you know, I, I still feel that it's a, it's a misunderstanding, uh, that, you know, that government has made a mistake, and I still hold out hope every day that that mistake will be understood and um, the approach to this problem will be changed. Because, you know, the studies that we have on what happens when um, people um, have experienced long-term homelessness who, who have significant complexity in their lives is that, you know, even if you look at, at all, all the costs, you know, if you can give them a secure home, we'll end up saving about 13500 a year each for each person in, in different types of costs. So uh, it, it makes economic sense as well as enormous humanitarian sense. Yeah, and it's it's disappointing to hear about a government program that you know purportedly was was working quite well, being cut because you know there are many many examples of government programs that don't quite deliver on what they set out to, at the outset. So I'm just wondering, sort of in in your perspective of, of, of working through this program and seeing the outcomes that result from it, how has it actually impacted the lives of individuals? In I suppose in some cases preventing people from falling into homelessness, but then being able to you know sort of access broader support. And, and find a job and have find broader stability in their lives from that that point of, of, of having a roof over their head. Look, um, the, the the model that inspires this program, and look, it, it's not a perfect it's not a perfect model yet, but it is an opportunity to, to make this a, a perfect model. is is called Housing First. It's it's internationally. Uh, evidence-based. Um, we've shown in Australia that, it, that it's uh, perfect for Australia as well and it just really recognises that um, for people with long-term homelessness who uh, have uh, mental health problems, addiction problems, have had uh, experiences of the correctional system, that really um, if you can just provide flexible support so that when things start to go off the rails and, um, you know, perhaps there are problems with maintaining uh, finance, payments, maybe there are problems with uh, neighbours, maybe there's a problem with uh, maintaining uh, mental health uh, support. Um, 
all those sorts of uh, mixture of living problems, that early intervention there can actually prevent eviction, can prevent the loss of a home and maintain that stability in housing, which underpins stability in health and mental health as well. It's, it's not rocket science, it's a bit of a no-brainer, uh, but it, it doesn't happen without the investment the Victorian government has made, and we're really just saying they should keep doing it. Jenny Smith's with us, uh, the Chief Executive of Council to Homeless Persons, and we're uh, speaking about a program called Homeless to Home, uh, which is a program that uh, turned up during the pandemic and has been quite effective and has been cut in the recent state budget, and uh, talking about the implications of that cut. And, I mean... I know that you mentioned earlier, Jenny, that this particular program, you know, yes, we saw it uh, happen, that the Housing First approach happened during the pandemic and uh, it was quite radical uh, what happened there, but it's something that could be ongoing. But do you think without the funding to this program, we could go back to what were record numbers of people sleeping rough um, before the the lockdowns? Look, what we know is that if we... um provide people with social housing with this sort of complexity in their lives without the support that around half of them won't be in that housing two years later. So inevitably that will see rough sleeping grow. Now rough sleeping we haven't we we housed about half uh, Victoria's rough sleepers through this program but uh, you know that still means that there are a lot of rough sleepers out there. Um, already. So we are seeing rough sleeping return and what we wanted to see is this be 1,845 places that um, as as vacancies became available, more rough sleepers, more of the 9,000 rough sleepers who come to our homelessness services in Victoria every year would be able to access um, this housing they could afford and support. We, we don't want to see it just linked to the particular individuals who accessed it at a particular point in time. Um, so we, we will see rough sleeping in any case, but we will, we will inevitably see more rough sleeping if that support uh, isn't continued. Yeah, and I mean, we've been talking about this issue in relation to the state government in, here in Victoria, of course, but, you know, we are in a federal election campaign and housing affordability has been a, a really major focus. But I haven't really heard much about homelessness um, specifically. Is, is there anything that, that you would hope could happen following the election in terms of maybe a more integrated approach from sort of the state and federal governments to, to addressing this issue across Australia as a whole? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Victorian government, as, as state and territory governments around the country, have been doing the heavy lifting all on their own. Um, you know, what we need is, uh, well, three things really nationally. Is we need a, a plan to tackle it and to tackle uh, housing affordability for people on low incomes. We need the uh, Centrelink income uh, to be about doubled. We need to go from, uh, well, $35 a day to about $80 $80. $80 a day, and we need investment in social housing as an ongoing thing, not just in fits and starts as uh, stimulus, which is what we've seen over the last decade or so. Well, there's still a few days left of this campaign, Jenny. Let's see if uh, any of those points are addressed. Um, we haven't oh, heard well, so the, much about it. The, the, the Greens have made a you know, very strong commitment. Labor has uh, certainly made an encouraging uh, commitment about a plan and uh, 
4,000 social houses a year, but our incumbent government is yet to uh, speak about anything much other than first home buyers. Mm. Well, let's wait and see what happens. Really appreciate your time this morning, Jenny. Thanks so much. Thank you both. Jenny Smith there, the Chief Executive of Council to Homeless Persons, talking specifically about um, a cut to funding in a key program um, addressing homelessness here in Victoria. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. People have voted and later this month the Philippines Congress will formally announce the winners, but we already know who they are. Bong Bong Marcos will be president and Sarah Duterte vice president. Both have very famous last names. Bong Bong Marcos is the son of Ferdinand and Amelga Marcos, uh, the ruling family that was driven out of power in the Philippines 36 years ago. And Sarah Duterte is the daughter of current president Rodrigo Duterte. So now what for democracy and decency? in the Philippines. Our writer and academic Adrian De Leon joins us on Zoom from the US. Adrian's Assistant Professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at USC Dornziff College of Letters and Arts and Sciences. And um, Adrian, I, I wrote all of those things down so I could read them all out. Uh, welcome to Triple R. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to join you from across the Pacific. And um, both Bong Bong Marcos and Sarah Duterte, it looks like they've won the vote convincingly. Um, did the election go as expected in the Philippines? I think it depends who you ask. Um, I kind of saw it coming, unfortunately, just accounting for the long history, you know, not just of voter suppression in the Philippines, but also just kind of the long history of dynasties. But you know, I think in places like Manila and places like the Visayas, certainly in other local contexts, you know, there was really a moment in which we might have seen a Lenny presidency, right? Like a sort of restoration, not just to, not just for democracy, but really, you know, community-based local kind of activism and politics. But that's not how it played out. And I guess we got six more years of an authoritarian regime in the Philippines. Yeah. And, and so what were, were the key factors in, in Bong Bong being elected? I mean, was there an element of um, sort of, you know, popular support or, or, or rather do you put his election down to significant voter suppression and, and I suppose also the impact of social media disinformation and the like? You know, I think it's a bit of column A and column B. Um, you know, I really do not just believe, but there is there's very substantial evidence, not just of voter suppression in terms of, you know, false false counts, um, machines suddenly breaking down, right? Um, and social media disinformation, especially, you know, with Cambridge Analytica possibly having gotten involved as in, 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 in the second half of the 2010s. But also, I want to think about the sort of possible appeal that, um, you know, the Marcos Duterte presidency might have had for people on the ground. And, you know, there, there's no one neat answer. Um, you know, a lot of scholars have also talked about, you know, the, the ways that those histories of human rights abuses during martial law with Marcos's uh, father, Fernando Marcos Sr., have been erased, systemically erased in Philippine education and discourse. But also at the same time, too, you know, there's there's something to be said, I think, about local politics and the ways that, you know, particular kinds of patronage on a local level might have spurred, you know, this to sort of, you know, take place on a national level. I mean, you know, from afar, it seems that I mean, I I remember the um, the Marcos uh, family being driven out. So I would have been, you know, relatively young, um, 36 years ago. Uh, but I do remember it was big news. It was a big story. Uh, how is it that 
that legacy could have been an asset because it looks like it was in the campaign an asset for Bongbong Marcos having a ruling family that brought in martial law in the 70s. I mean, how, how did that play in, in the, way, the opposite way than you might think from afar? I think one thing you you said was is really the operative word here, which is ruling families, right? And that's sort of the history, by and large, of 20th and 21st century Philippine politics on the national level. You know, in the 1986, the people, the first People Power Revolution, which saw the Marcos um, family being ousted from the Philippines, we also have to remember that the United States was very much part of not just supporting the Marcos regime until it became unpopular but also offering them safety, mm. right? And so they got, to, they got to flee to Hawaii and then the continental United States, um, you know, in order to kind of bide their time and then return to the Philippines once, you know, political, um, you know, political opinion, even as, as early as the Corazon Aquino presidency, the revolutionary presidency, you know, swayed in the other way. But also at the same time, too, that, you know, we often celebrate the figures like Ninoy Aquino, Benigno Aquino, Aquino, um, you know, who was assassinated in 1983, um, presumably by Marcos cronies themselves, we, all, we often assume the Aquinos and Corazon Aquino after to be sort of, you know, saviors of the Philippines, right? but they too were ruling families. And they have, you know, much of the same, you know, sort of histories in which their ancestors and, and their families benefited from a lot of the political economic changes under the U.S. And so it's, it's not a coincidence that, you know, we sort of see not just the rise again of, of, of a sort of like popular you know, or at least popularly known and notorious despotic regime from back in the Philippines, but that their popular falls along really similar lines of other presidencies, which is it's it's the same it's the same few families up top. Yeah, and I mean this uh, you know, new government will take over from Rodrigo Duterte, who's you know been president there for six years. His really brutal war on drugs has been widely publicised. Um, you know, listeners also might have heard of um, of um, attacks on journalists or efforts to suppress journalists, such as Maria Ressa, the, uh, Maria Ressa rather, the, the founder of Rap Club. But, but what kind of country are Ferdinand Marcos Jr. and Sarah Duterte inheriting? I mean. W- w- What's your sense of, of where Philippines sits currently in terms of it, its democracy and, and, and what kinds of leaders they might be taking on um, that, that role? That's a really great question because, you know, on one hand, it's, it's, you know, you might say it's a reversion towards the Marcos dynasty of the Cold War. But in a lot of ways, the Philippines is vastly different now, Reina. You know, that um, the Philippines, especially after the Marcos period, um, either could no longer or refuse to support its people on the ground, right? So social services um, are now at an all-time low, support for the poor, um, you know, even access to basic democratic and electoral processes, right, at an all-time low, let alone access to healthcare and, 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 and social services like that. And so they inherit a Philippines that is not just deeply divided, but also deeply stratified. And in a lot of ways, I think the, the stratification is to the benefit of these ruling dynasties and ruling families, you know, that the Marcoses, you know, have particular strength, like the Dutertes have particular local strongholds as landowners in the north and in the south in Mindanao, right? But also, you know, there's there, there's a sort of, they're also banking on a sort of nostalgia for a better society in which the Philippines was imagined to, you know, be much more prosperous during the Marcos regime, which is categorically false, right? But that narrative has been pushed, you know, so strongly over the past eight years since 2014 with the rise of Bongbong international politics, 
that we can kind of see the way that that stratification played to their benefit. And so they're, they're, they're inheriting a Philippines that I think much like a lot of states, nation states around the world, really, you know, divested from from supporting local populations and supporting the general population as well. Yeah, it's, uh, when you tell that story, it's it's hard then to understand what has made them gain the popular support, which it looks like they've had in the the election just passed. And I guess you know uh, what what I don't understand is how do you rise in politics in the Philippines? Is it through that local? Level. I, I mean, I think that's you know the story of Rodrigo Duterte is that he made inroads in in um, in sort of provincial parts of the Philippines and then rose to the the top job. Is is that similar to Bongbong and, and Sarah, or, or you know what's their rise look like, um, Adrian? That's good. Yeah, that's a good question because I think you know for first Duterte, Rodrigo Duterte, as well as Marcos Senior, they on one hand you know really got their start as local political elites that benefited, you know, from, from American and post-American. But also that they have incredibly loyal, fan, um, you know, I was going to say fan bases, which is, I guess, not inaccurate, right? But <laughs> um, local electoral support, right? And so, you know, in, in the case of Duterte, something that was interesting watching him come to power in 2016 was that a lot of the promises that he made were the promises of a despotic, Right. And I think early on, you know, he he really banked on the kinds of socioeconomic developments um, that were really ruthless that he enacted in Davao. Right. And in Mindanao, um, in which, you know, he declared, you know, local equivalencies to martial law. And he sort of, you know, trialed his um, the death squads that he's kind of now known for in a national level and took it to a national level. But I think with 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 Sarah Duterte and Bong Bong Marcos, they 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 also inherit you know, their respective father's legacies and the kind of political and cultural cloud and cultural capital that they both have, right? And so in a lot of ways, theirs is the next six years, you know, of, of, of writing a really strong brand in the Philippines. Yeah. Speaking with writer and academic Adrian De Leon, um, Adrian is Assistant Professor of American Studies and Ethnicity over at the University of Southern California. And, and I'm interested in your perspective uh, as to what opposition might look like in this next term of government. H- how do you imagine that might play out for those who, you know, maybe ran on, on quite a different platform and, and, and imagine quite a different future for Philippines democracy? I think that's that's a good question too, because I think in and and certainly I'm guilty of this, right? The the sort of bleak outlook over the next six years sort of puts blinders in tor- in terms of what kind of opposition is happening. And there actually is really strong opposition that is not just taking place at a local level, but I think, you know, to the credit to the credit of Lenny Robredo, um, she has you know sort of pledged to sort of maintain a sort of presidential fervor, even if she's not elected, right? She's starting the nonprofit, making sure, you know, that for democracy in the Philippines. Um, But also I think a lot where a lot of, you know, the strongest um, forms of opposition might take place is outside of the electoral platform, right? On one hand, it's journalists like Maria Ressa and Mm -hmm. journalists all over the world who, you know, are really pushing back and then making sure to, you know, showcase not just to the world, but to like local people what, the material realities of a Duterte and a Marcos regime is, and, and, and historically what a Marcos regime was during the Cold War. But also at the same time that I think, I think you know, we can't just look within the Philippine archipelago. A lot of the votership, but also a lot of the activism is taking place abroad, 
in the diaspora, right? So whether that's overseas Filipino workers in places like Dubai or Saudi Arabia or Hong Kong or the United States, or overseas, you know, second generation and first generation Filipino migrants abroad who have been really doing really incredible work trying to do this global organizing and global advocacy. So we know um, your presidents have one six-year term in the Philippines, and then so Rodrigo Duterte's um, term is up. Um, Bong Bong Marcos will have a six-year term, but because Sarah Duterte is running as vice president and will be there for six years, there's a chance that she could run as president uh, following that for another six years. Is that likely to happen from where we are now, Adrian, that we might see um, Sarah Duterte at at the highest levels in the Philippines for for the next decade or more? I think that is not just highly likely, but probable. Um, However, you know, Duterte sort of respected the, and that's that's a very loose word, right? Like respected the six-year term in a lot of ways because as he was rising to national politics, part of his pathway towards that was gaining the favor of, you know, the Marcos camp, right? Bong Bong Marcos was initially his running mate in the in, in the vice presidential candidate. He lost to Lenny, right? But, you know, a lot of ways that, you know, I think we can see that Duterte was brokering over the course of six years the rise of a Marcos dynasty, as well as his own back into national politics. And so one of the things that we might watch out for is, you know, what would, you know, would similar things like Marcos Sr.'s regime happen, right? Like would 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 he, you know, declare martial law and suspend habeas corpus and change the Philippine constitution a million times, right? And change the you know, re-election policies and 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 term lengths. You know, that's something that has been seen in very recent memory in Philippine elections. And so, you know, on one hand, you know, Sarah Duterte could run after six years, but on the other hand, will it just be six years? Yeah, and. and uh... I mean, you know, part it's, of what's really terrifying. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and I mean, you you touched on America's sort of you know colonial history with Philippines and, and its relationship with the previous um, Marcos regime as well. And I mean, Australia's and the United States relationship. You know, we we signed a recent um, geostrategic security agreement with the United States. You know, seeing Australia as um, as I suppose an ally in in the Asia Pacific. But but how do you imagine the recent election in Philippines, I mean, does it change the diplomatic picture and how should countries engage with this um, this next presidency? I think in one way it sort of smooth, in, 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 a really, in a really insidious and sort of monstrous sense, it sort of smoothens out a lot of what Duterte was trying to do. You know, mm. the Philippines as a geo, you know, a strategically geopolitically important place in the Asia Pacific region has and I think will continue to be the sort of, you know, cipher through which the United States, as well as China and other competing powers, you know, project their power and dominance over the region. And so, you know, the United States, you know, as, as recently, I think, as last week, you know, Joe Biden, um, even even though the official election count hadn't come out yet nominally, Joe Biden sent his congratulations to Marcos. And I think a lot of people, you know, not just who are survivors or are families of survivors of martial law, but in the diaspora and, you know, you know, know what it means to, you know, critique American imperialism felt not just betrayed, right, but, but sort of cast to the wayside, right? Like in a lot of ways, you know, the continuity of rule, of, of, of American rule in the Pacific through the Marcos regime, through Biden is, is something that, you know, in the United States, we, you know, nominally should have expected better from the Democrats, although that's not necessarily true. <laughs> 
You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Oh, 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 
Back in 2017, Melbourne duo Shoust released that track, Love Tonight. It was the very first song they worked on together and was initially pretty well received in certain circles. It definitely got quite a bit of airplay here on Triple R and featured on dance floors in various places, but it was years later that it really started to take off around the world, first in Lithuania and then by May 2021 had become a global hit, charting in countries uh, off the back of a remix by house music legend David Guetta. Shouse is playing as part of Melbourne Music Week Extras coming up on Saturday, May 21st with Matriarchy and Komang and the two people behind the project, Jack Maiden and Ed Service, join us now in studio. Hey guys, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having You've us. Done your research. Yeah, that's indeed. Precisely. <laughs> yeah, you got it. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> well, um, uh, I mean, it's not a bad strike rate, you know, coming up with your first track and it becomes a, a global hit some years <laughs> later. Tell us the origin story of, of Shouse. Yeah, well, it was when we say it's our first track. It's I don't know if it's the first track we released per se, but it was the first track we ever wrote together. Mm. And uh, it, the origin story is more or less. A classic or unclassic style. I don't know, we met in a smoky nightclub at like 2 or 3 a.m., started talking about music. Let's make music together. Oh, let's go in the studio. And one of those chats, um, and but one of those rare chats where it actually happened. And like a few days later, <laughs> we're in the studio jamming on some synths and drum machines. And yeah, Love Tonight was essentially the first song that came out. And some of the same, just that dodgy bass take, that weird flute sample, um, and the hook are like still in the final version of that track. So it's... Um, yeah, funny little story, and we just started making weird, what we called weirdo house music in uh, Melbourne because we were two guys, not with really any background in the dance music scene, just into dance music and trying to figure out how to make it on the fly, and it was pretty pretty bad to start, but um, <laughs> I guess started to improve. Um, yeah, and, um, you know, we just played around in Melbourne underground, I guess this is quote-unquote underground scene for a few years with a lot of amazing people and the scene was you know i remember it being very vibrant experimental and strange and cool and lots of mates just supporting each other going to each other's gigs singing on each other's songs yeah and hence like love tonight we had a big choir of 30 40 people um lots of different lead singers and we, we always had co- collaborations and feature artists on our songs so they're just from the you know the melbourne music community as mm. such so it was kind of a project by the community, for the community, the way we saw it. Yeah. Could, could you tell that you're onto a, a winner then when, you, when it came together, when you first heard it come together? I mean, no, not really. But, I mean, it, it, it sort of it sat there as, like, it was the first, um, the first thing we did, like, literally the first sort of in that, you know, because also Ed and I weren't exactly friends as, as in like we just met and then we started doing music mm. before we developed a sort of a friendship. So it's sort of, it, it's always sat there, I think, um, for us as like, you know, you know, maybe you find a photo of like the first time you met or something uh, and you yes. kind of go back and you're like, oh, look, that, I think that's the first <laughs> night we met, you know, or like some Facebook old photo. Uh-huh. So it sort of actually sits there as literally the first time we sort of, hung out Mm. and so i mean i'm sort of retrospectively applying that to it but it sort of does feel like it had something special and it was just a bunch of chords and and the 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 main hooky line it didn't have any anything else we actually ed sent me the other day you found it on a hard drive the first demo the first live recording which just sounds like so 20 minutes long (laughs) (laughs) but it has something in yeah a little something in there and so 
like Ed was saying, we didn't release that song for a while because we um, we did, you know we recorded that and we did other things and then we started doing songs with friends and then this idea of like um, um, making a bigger collaborative song kind of inspired by the We Are The World um, Live Aid stuff. And I, don't, I can't exactly remember where the, the ideas came from, but it, it, it got bigger and bigger, essentially. And, and so the idea was bigger than the song. So we sort of needed a song, but the mm. idea was about getting lots of people together. Yeah. And that, I think, relates to sort of a bit of... Um, I, came, I grew up in like a folky background um and lots of the all the people that i i was in another band called the harpoons and all of those folk i met through this like folky world and it was an idea to do something bigger than just the individual collaborations maybe and so then the song it's sort of it's it's merged and so the song kind of existed and then i, I was just chatting to my brother today about how he we were going to, I can't believe this, but we were going in that moment when we were going to the choir, um, the day before, it was just the, the hook line, like there was no verses. Oh, yeah. Or like the week before. And wow. we just had no, I don't know what we were thinking. Yeah. Anyway, my, my brother was reminding me today, they're like, you know, there wouldn't be verses if I hadn't so he told you to told write, you write some he said write verses. I didn't, yeah. didn't point it out to you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was like, where's the verses? And, and Maybe so, it would have been a hit sooner if there weren't verses in that. <laughs> Someone looking for a writing credit by the sound yeah, of things. Exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and, I mean, did you have the sense at that stage of, of what success meant? meant to you because you know it, it got you know got some obviously airplane triple r and and was soundtracking you know sort of dance clubs and, and that sort of thing but did you have grand plans for meredith. it or was that enough yeah honestly meredith, yeah, yeah playing meredith that was the only planes for if you're listening yeah um, but no and like that you know may or may not happen in the future we'd love to but uh it, it essentially came from yeah i think my inspiration for making music very and being in a band playing live just came from having you know transcendental experiences at Meredith and yeah. seeing like the effect that music can have on people and crowds and making people feel come together, feel a sense of unity. And this is like a thing we've been reading about and thinking about more. And it's kind of driving our inspiration for making music is what we call communitas, communitas. which we learned from, uh, it's an old anthropological term, um, that's used to, to, to describe the experiences that communities get into in certain states of rites of passage when they all feel connected and on the same plane and together and we use that concept um, to help drive our thinking for why we make music and the meaning behind the music and, and things like trying to understand why Love Tonight was such a success. And we think it is that feeling of, like Jack said, our, our friendship and beauty and the greater friendship of the whole choir of people making music together, participating equally as equals. You know, they're not really professionals. They're a bunch of mates and you can feel that energy in the room they're like the singing's just like you feel like you can take part in it you yeah. know and yeah it feels like it yeah it feels amazing when you listen to it and and see the clip of it people singing and yeah and it's all real you know like yeah so do, do you know how the good people of lithuania connected <laughs> to the song so, well, yeah like sometime just as at the, near the start of the pandemic i think um we found this YouTube clip that was um, had like six million players or something, which was ex extraordinary at the time. And um, it was by a Lithuanian uploader, a YouTuber, and all the comments were in Lithuanian. We couldn't wrap our head around what it meant. And all I did was like comment on the YouTube and be like, "What's going on here? Like, <laughs> why do all you Lithuanians love this song?" And someone just commented, and this is the best intelligence I've got, which is just like, "Someone played it. A DJ played it." At, 
Granitos Live, which is a Granitos Live. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it or whatever, but it's our big festival here. It was a huge moment, and everyone in Lithuania loves it. Like, and that's, what, <laughs> <laughs> that's all I know. It kicked off. But like, we did have some remixes done by guys like Mike Simonetti, which I remember we saw DJ Solomon, who's a big house DJ, was playing it in Russia. And... Um, Maybe mm. anyway, some of the remixes maybe wormed their way into Europe, and then somehow the hook just became a hook that they you know yeah. hooked onto, and uh, eventually by 2020 it was kind of playing all across the continent. What a trippy experience to have made the track years earlier, and then just watching it sort of take over in various parts of the world. Were you literally looking at your kind of you know streaming numbers <laughs> and, and locations and trying to get a sense of what the hell was going on? Exactly, a fully. Uh, Data-driven experience. Data <laughs> yes, surreal experience. Particularly yeah. because the pandemic meant we couldn't go anywhere, we couldn't experience it. And it's a strange um, synonymy, synonymy, uh occurrence at the same time with the virus, right? And you've got these things like these viral charts and these, you wake up to numbers every day, 300, 400, 40,000. And we had a similar thing with the streaming and the, you can see why they call it viral because it follows a very similar pattern. Yeah. So it's just a really strange thing to be happening concurrently. And... Uh, yeah, like Jack said, our experience of it was, and this was like five years after we'd released it. So it already, you know, been played on Triple O, you know, we had parties at, around Melbourne, and then we got full time jobs and careers that we were really enjoying and, you know, having a good time in and kind of, you know, put the music thing to the side for a music <laughs> as a career thing to the side for a while. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and then the song started exploding five years later during the pandemic. So we had a really strange, alienated, digital experience of it happening and and couldn't leave the country couldn't actually leave the country. we weren't permitted to leave australia no. a lot of people unless you had a special reason was and touring the world with music a reason could you get out um, we, last year to do anything we or? did we had eventually yeah. yeah we had that moment of um really uh, the 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 bizarreness, yeah, fully culminated. Surreal, like, it didn't feel real because, at all. Totally, yeah. And it's, lots of this stuff, um, 2018, 19, that was sort of like, that was novelty amounts of, you know, it was interesting. A Lithuania, oh, somewhere, you, you, can't, yeah, yeah. you can't go to another country to play one song that yeah. a few people know. But then it got, yeah, ridiculous during the, the pandemic. Did the remix. And then, yeah, and mm. then that. And then it was finally like we we had this a big enough sort of crazy enough weird enough offer which was to go to to paris fashion week which was mi still mid pandemic it really felt like it was sort uh, of here it was here, here it was peak here, yeah yeah peak um, i can't remember what wave or what lockdown or whatever yeah. but it was like, you couldn't even go to people's house for dinner no it was wow. and it was that level of like we had our first uh, you know first experience of getting out of Australia at the same time we did, everyone we knew was in there. Yeah, and we didn't houses. believe it. Yeah. I didn't believe it till no. we were on the plane. Like, you know, it was like, we got this great offer, Paris Fashion Week, come and play on the steps of the Opera Garnier in Paris for a lingerie fashion show. Yes. It's like, and the whole thing with the song didn't seem real prior to that. And no, we were still like, you know, trying to, and then we were on the plane and then we're in Paris and hmm. very yeah. surreal. And, um, yeah, I couldn't, going from when you can't go to your mate's house to dinner straight to the, packed Paris Fashion Week was yeah, the that, extraordinary contrast. That's completely bizarre experience. And, yeah. and so, um, you know, different to so many bands and artists who, you know, really struggled during COVID because they couldn't get out and yeah. perform. But then you had your track just taking off around the world. As you say, probably because people were really craving connection and yeah. craving community and couldn't have it at that time. That's what we think. Yeah, yeah. And like, yeah, the, so, yeah. the song 
had an energy of its own, I guess, that just pulled us over there in the end. Well, it, I mean, and it pulled us back in because we were not in music. And, like, you mm. know, I, I felt multiple times during the 2020 that sort of felt terrible for the music industry, oh, the yeah. music mm. scene, and, um, and sort of like, you know, reflected on what would have happened had I still been, because I was in a band for a long time, yeah. you know, and we were both doing music a lot more a few years earlier. Um, and so we definitely feel incredibly lucky that this has sort of pulled us back in um, in a way that we can hopefully reconnect with Melbourne <laughs> eventually. Like, honestly, this um, this Saturday is our first gig in Melbourne. Yeah, wow. Um, and that's a, such a reflection. And the first live gig is going to be proper, because like, we've been booked as DJs all across the world that we've played in, like, for four years or something. Gee, yeah, that is a long time. So, I mean, tell us more about the other music that you make and play, because you said that touring off one song didn't mm. seem realistic, but then you go to Fashion Week and you probably can tour off one song if you do, you're the soundtrack yeah. to a lingerie <laughs> yeah, yeah. But But then what's happened since then? Like, what, what, what's your repertoire? Uh, well, I mean, the good thing is DJs can play other people's songs. Yeah. Uh, so we've been utilising <laughs> that. But I think um, we, we, we both early on when we, when we started realising, well, we could keep doing this, you know, we, we kind of will come back in and we'll hopefully build an idea around, you know, I, I draw a lot actually from like being a primary school music teacher, I think, um, in terms of often often we're in festivals and DJ situations where you kind of, you're, you're part entertainer, part, you know, it's, 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 you're playing music, but you're also sort of a presence and you sort of, a lot of these weird shows where we're kind of, we've only got 15 minutes or something, you know, these mm, sort of very sure. hyper commercial, weird radio. French radio performances <laughs> where you sort of get out, you play a song and you go, hey, 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 and then you, then it's over, <laughs> which is so different to any, Melbourne kind of gigs, bands, musical experiences we've ever done. But it actually, it, a, a lot of the primary school music teaching um, skills come in, <laughs> you know, come into play. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, yeah. Look over here, look over here. And now we're done, you know, play the song. Um, but I think we are trying to, trying we, bizarrely to pick all the pieces together because we can, we can do these things overseas because the song had this success, but then... We believe in community music and folky music and, and the stuff in Melbourne, and we're just trying now to slowly piece it all together. And, you know, this, this Melbourne Music Week gig was, you know, meant to be in January and got pushed back and pushed back, and that's, you know, sort of the world we're in in, in Melbourne where it's sort of we're just crawling out mm. and, and, like you're saying, all these bands and people are sort of... It's feeling real again, mm. and, you know, and so... We're hoping that we can somehow maintain a, a balance between going overseas a little bit, but um, then also starting some things in Melbourne that feel more connected to the community that we sort of had. And then, you know, it sort of just naturally dissipates as people yeah. you know, get jobs and stop doing music and we'd love to reconnect. And So we've been like writing music with lots of Jack's dad's uh, instruments that he has invented, sampling these weird, strange, idiosyncratic very special instruments that Jack's dad makes. You're looking up J-O-N Maiden. Um, he's got some special stuff. Um, and we've been out at Jack's, like, the dad's place, like, sampling these, recording these and putting them into tracks. And 
on yeah just making some kind of strange weird ambient electronic not ambient i mean acoustic electronic dance music stuff we're still figuring out where it lands but i think it's pretty beautiful and um so yeah this saturday we're going to get some people playing some of these instruments great we're gonna have horns we're going to have a big choir of 20 30 people maybe depending on how many show up um and yeah, it's just going to yeah. be a big all and participatory fun thing. Yeah, it's- awesome. And I mean, do, do you feel any pressure having had the huge success of Love Tonight? Because it's really great to hear you coming back to Melbourne and reconnecting with community and being really excited about this show coming up after just so excited. You know, having been to the to the US and 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 yeah. to it around Europe as well. But but what's it like writing music at this point in time? Can you sort of detach yourselves from that huge fanfare of international audiences? I guess I would just say to what you said before, like you know, when we said about Meredith is our inspiration. It's because that there and here, you know, you're playing to the people you love, people you care about, your community, and all these great shows across the world are special and strange and amazing and interesting. But they still don't come even close to kind of participating in the music with people that you care about and love. So we're yeah. so excited about that. In terms of pressure, we're trying to. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like we're, we're we're trying to figure out how to ride the line of, um, you know, we've got these commercial radio hits now, and we've got like and latest single, won't forget you is like. You know, it's all over German and French radio, commercial radio. They seem to like it. That's kind of like our home ground is a non-English as a first language kind of Western, Eastern European countries as well. Yeah, right. Ukraine <laughs> and Russia actually love that song. Yeah. Um, but we're trying to figure out, uh, yeah, writing the, like Jack was kind of alluding to before, writing the middle ground of uh, making commercial hits still imbued with the community choir kind of aspect that we have and making experimenting with music and people and artists that fulfill our kind of musical curiosities yeah i think i think the there's a few key things that sort of fell into place for us which was very lucky which is that we we had that song but we weren't with like a major label yeah we have a local independent label um and so they don't have the same pressure got a tiny team. system. Yeah, a nice tiny team but that is supportive and understands where we're kind of coming from. And then, and then we sort of have these bizarre moments, like another one, which was going into a studio with David Guetta oh, yeah. uh, in L.A. Um, a couple of weeks ago. And which, which is just bonk, you know, mind-blowingly bonkers as, as, as a concept. But then you sort of, the moment we, we've got this bizarre access to this world, we can sort of try to, um, you know, we might make a song out of it, we might release this song and it'll be, you know, Shouse and David Guetta or something. Or vice versa, yeah. probably. Or vice versa. But, yeah. <laughs> but it's just, it's having... And that, your brother. Is that yeah, and yeah. Henry, Henry will get Henry. Henry wants it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just going to be like, because that's not our world. We're not, we're not going to move to LA. We're not going to try. No. But, but it's this ability to hopefully um, allow ourselves to sort of see some of this stuff and hopefully not get too... You know, somewhere sitting somewhere in between jaded and um, old, and you know, <laughs> like, and not 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 jump in too much, but then also hopefully see some of the good in it. Um, but it also sounds fresh and yeah. new. It sounds yeah. uh, for it, you guys because you're is. about to tour. You've been to the US, yeah. but you're about to go away for three months. Which is, have you done that before? Not done a big tour like long. that? And, yeah. and I'll just say that, like, hopefully we can bring to that world a bit of our world and what exactly. we did with yes. you know yeah. Live Tonight is the most beautiful thing about Live Tonight when I see it being a you know played at all these festivals around the world is there's all these beautiful Melbourne friends voices singing across the entire planet yeah. you know and it's it's crazy and like we the 
hopefully we can do that, like not stray away from what we what we really find totally, and enjoy yeah. music and inject it into that greater world. And the thing is, when we worked with David, like we made a song and he's like, we were talking about working with all these pop artists and contacts he knows. And then afterwards he was like, you know what? You should record this with one of your choirs. That's what we want is that energy. And I think yeah. that's really kind of special, you know. But totally. yeah, the three months to it. Um, no, we, uh, I've never done anything like that. We've done it. We did like wow. a month, a few Back Last, in November, yeah. but that was yeah. still kind of COVID-y, so the gigs were few-ish and far between-ish. This is like 35, 35 gigs. That someone counted it the other day. And, um, <laughs> and I haven't counted it. I was like, wow, thanks for counting. But, um, yeah, and, I mean, it's exciting and exhausting uh, to think about, but, um, it, you know, it's... It's it might not sound a, so bizarre at the end of three months. You might go, actually, this is the new normal. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we, we don't want that yes. to be like, – because, you know, we're both live community and home and being rooted and in place, and like, I'm so excited to come back. But at the same time, you know, really excited to go and learn. And after two years or so, I've been mm-hmm. cooped up mostly to go see the world and see what they're doing over there. And Totally. We're just very lucky, and we can't – Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's about managing – can't say no to some of these ridiculous absolutely you know um so we feel lucky but then yes want to don't you know i felt bad you know leaving school um mm. you know like going on an extended leave it was sort of and i know ed feels that sort of we we don't want to get too dislocated and disconnected so you know that's why it's nice coming in here yeah, yeah. listening to triple r being around you know and so yeah absolutely yeah. and uh, so tell us about this show coming up mm. um this weekend so melbourne music week extra so this was one that was postponed from yeah. sort of covid related stuff mm. i imagine um what are you, you going to be doing well yeah i'm um, like that was booked for january i believe got pushed back for covid reasons um we were really looking forward to it and now we're really looking forward to it again yeah. <laughs> um like i said it's like our first we've been booked as DJs around the world because that's what people want and it's a lot easier for everyone yeah. <laughs> um, but our heart was kind of in live music and participatory music like singing music with lots of people playing music with lots of people so we're going to bring a lot of Jack's dads wacky weird instruments we're cool. going to have a small orchestra of people playing that we're going to have a horn section we're going to have a choir what else Jack yep. we got we got J pipes which are we huge pipes. big um, pipes in a J shape and <laughs> uh, echo cellos, yeah. which are sort of little cello instruments, but they have a spring and there are lots of reverb. We've got um, these yeah, are all literally surprises. Jack's dad waxes together in a tiny little shed in the country. Yeah, like, fantastic. Yeah. It's very primary school music, but it's it's about connecting those things that that make yeah. people feel a little bit more comfortable. Hopefully, joining in, singing, jumping around. Um, and just lots of friends and lots of, yeah, horns, lots of sort of these big feeling energy moments. Yeah, all our music. Yeah. We um, might need yeah. that on Saturday because turns out there's a federal oh, election. Uh, yes. So uh, I don't know, you know, if you're going to have uh, Anthony Green on in the background on the screen well, I mean, or you're going to turn them all off. The or... yeah, Jack might have an earpiece in and then we can <laughs> yeah. announce the result from the stage or just not say anything depending on what the results are. Yes. Yep. But we're hoping it'll be a huge night of celebration for multiple reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. People are going to be hint to blow off some steam, whatever the case, after, after yeah. six weeks. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, well, maybe we'll change our final track selection depending on the outcome. <laughs> Funeral <laughs> dude, oh. yeah, <laughs> Wagner, or um, yeah. But uh, yeah, look, we're so excited for it. Um, yeah. And, you know, Melbourne Music Week crew has been amazing to work with. So, the Melbourne Museum people, they've really helped mm. us with lots of production and ideas, and they've been really supportive. And um, there'll be. You know, I think we've got like 40 or 50 performers, maybe, depending on who shows up, wow. including choir, Huge, horns. Yeah. So, 
and we hope the crowd uh, loses track of who's performing and they feel that performance for you. Know, totally, it all comes together. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like an amazing show, and um, hopefully um, there'll be some more coming up soon once you return from Europe and yeah. can sort of we can you know all catch you in Melbourne much um, more into the future. It's been such a pleasure having you both in studio Thank today, you. Jack and Ned, and um, yeah, best of luck with the tour and whatever comes next. Uh, and thank, thank you, you so for much. having us. It's such a pleasure. Yeah, yeah really Cheers. appreciate Absolute it. Absolute pleasure. And we will take um, another track from Shouse. This is uh, Won't Forget You, the track that um, you were just hearing. And also, uh, tickets are available for that show coming up um, uh, through Melbourne Music Week. Shouse are playing with Matriarchy and Komang. Uh, tickets available via um, yeah, Melbourne Music Week and perhaps Melbourne Museum's website as well. And uh, yeah, this one, Won't Forget You. Thank you. Thanks so much.
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.